everyone. Welcome to Faith in the Folds, a podcast for ministry, biblical studies, and Christian living. I'm your host, Kevin Burt. Today, I had the privilege of talking with my longtime friend and peer mentor, Luke Dockery. Luke is the youth and family minister for the Cloverdale Church of Christ in Searcy, Arkansas, a town about 45 minutes north of Little Rock. Luke has been a youth minister for almost 15 years and has even published a book describing his philosophy of youth in family ministry. In our conversation, we got to talk about the disturbing trend of seeing a large percentage of Christian teens eventually walk away from their faith when they graduate high school. Luke shares some insightful research into the spiritual lives of young people, and despite the concerning trend mentioned just a minute ago, Luke gives church leaders and church members some hope for how to remedy the situation. I hope you're challenged and blessed like I was after listening to Luke. There's definitely work to do, but if God is for us, who can be against us? If you enjoy the kinds of conversations we're having here on the podcast, would you be willing to like and to subscribe to us? And maybe share us with someone you think who might benefit from this? And as always, thank you so much for tuning in today. Luke, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. I'm excited to get to have this conversation with you. First, before we start off, let me ask you, can you tell us a little bit about your kind of personal and professional life? You know, where'd you go to school? How'd you get into youth ministry? Stuff like that to give our audience kind of an introduction to you. Yeah. Uh, first off, thanks, Kevin, for having me on. I really appreciate the opportunity. Uh, my name is Luke Dockery. I am the youth and family minister at the Cloverdale Church of Christ in Searcy, Arkansas. Uh, I've been here for about 18 months. Prior to that, for uh, 13 years, I was in youth ministry in Northwest Arkansas at the Farmington Church of Christ. Uh, I went to undergrad at Harding University here in Searcy. Um, I was actually not a youth ministry student there, um, okay. but kind of just through uh, a series of kind of opportunities and open doors, I kind of backed my way into uh, youth ministry. Um, what that meant is after a few years, uh, I really felt that I needed some additional training. So I did uh, go to grad school at Harding School of Theology in Memphis, where uh, after a prolonged period of study, I got my uh Master of Divinity degree, and uh, really while there, I was able to, to devote some time um, into the study of youth ministry and trying to do it more uh, effectively and more biblically, and so um, that's really been kind of a, an interest for me, both professionally and also just kind of research-based. Uh, I'm married. My wife, Caroline, and I have been married for almost 15 years now. We met at Harding. Uh, she actually is also employed uh, part-time by the church here as the children's education coordinator. And so that's been uh, really cool for us uh, because our, our ministries kind of overlap to a degree. Yeah. Um, we have uh, two kids, uh, a daughter who is nine and a son who is four. I think I covered uh, the, the intros that you wanted there. Yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> Caroline's job as a children's education coordinator, is is that comparable to what what is called elsewhere like children's minister or something but without being a full-time position uh yeah in my experience children's ministers kind of have very different uh job descriptions from okay. church to church so i would just yeah. say in her case uh it's very much focused on education very much gotcha. focused on bible classes and things like that not so much um kind of social aspects or event-based okay Okay. Well, very cool. Well, Luke, thanks. Uh, thanks again for joining us today. I have, um, I have known you since uh, 2005 and um, you mentioned 
you mentioned when you and Caroline got married, uh, I had the great honor of uh, serving in your wedding as the sound guy. That's right. Yeah. Uh, so here I am still yeah. running sound with you. And you did a good uh, job then. So I had 50, high expectations. For high you. expectations. Yeah. I, obviously that hit, that event was a smash back then. Yeah, that <laughs> was. So I have reasonably high expectations for what we're going to be able to do today. Um, I, I find it interesting that you've been in youth ministry for so long. Why haven't you done what most everybody else does and transitioned from youth ministry into real ministry? Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> I, say, just... I say real ministry only because I know your feelings about that and, and I'm just teasing. But yeah, uh, what, why have you been in youth ministry for so long? I'm like the career minor leaguer who never gets called up to the big <laughs> leagues. You know? uh, so I guess what I would say is that I believe strongly in the importance of youth ministry done well. And um, I, uh, I, I just really think that there's a need for youth ministry done in healthy ways. And so something that I've really come to appreciate is uh, early on, I just didn't have a clue what I was doing. At times, I feel like I still feel that way, but I feel like I've learned a lot. And so I'm really interested in uh, kind of continuing to uh, hone my skills, but also pass on what I've learned to other uh, other youth ministers and especially younger youth ministers. Um, and so I don't know. I just I, I enjoy preaching and I enjoy other aspects of ministry, and I, I get to do those things, and I, I like that. But I, I very much feel um, called to youth ministry. Uh, so does that mean I'll be doing this when I'm 60? Who knows? Uh, but I'm just really happy to be where I am, doing what I'm doing. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I joked only earlier about how it was, you know, implying that youth ministry wasn't real ministry. Unfortunately, it seems like a lot of places, although they might not say that, it does seem like maybe by their actions and how they, how they handle their youth ministers or how they handle their, or what expectations they have for youth ministry, it does seem like that is largely the case. I think what you have presented here, uh, or what you're about to present, and what I know you have presented elsewhere I think what you're what you're helping to do is kind of um, really kind of initiate a sea change in how we understand youth ministry and, and how we uh, really, I think, how we should give it the the grand significance that it deserves. So yeah, I, I, I would compliment your efforts on, on what I know you have done. And, and that's going to be the basis for what we're going to talk about here in just a little bit. Well, I appreciate you saying that. Um, it's certainly, that's part of my goal. I mean, I think to some degree we have not treated youth ministry with a lot of respect. And sometimes it's because as youth ministers, we have not deserved a lot of respect. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. But it is interesting because you, you'll kind of hear people say things like, you know, children are our most precious resource. So in that case, by all means, let's entrust them to a 22 year old and make sure that we pay him very little uh, <laughs> and then hope that somehow that turns out really, really well. Right. And, and um, be unwilling to invest in that 22 year old. Yeah. Right. And so um, I do think that we're reaching a point to where people are very much seeing youth ministry as more than kind of glorified babysitting. Mm. Uh, but, but certainly um, I think it's an important task and therefore it's one that is worth doing well. And so I've really tried to, to do that in my own ministry, but also hopefully to, uh, to do some research and to share some ideas that have, uh, can hopefully help others to, to do that well. Yeah. I'll take this time to plug your book, Youth in Family Ministry, um, which... You mean well, this book? That book right there, Youth in Family yeah. Ministry, a yeah. handbook published by Luke yeah. Dockery. Um, <laughs> first, I, I know it's for sale on Amazon, and uh, right. about, about how much is it? I 
I don't remember like 10 or 12 bucks, something like that. I don't, I don't exactly remember, honestly. Certainly something a youth minister should be able to afford. Yeah. Or, you know, like it's a great gift for a youth minister. Uh, Even better. If you're you're doing some shopping or yeah. (laughs) Even better. Well, you mentioned just a minute ago that you you think that we're kind of at a point where a lot of, a lot of maybe churches or folks in churches are beginning to realize the importance that youth ministry ought to have, especially when we say things like children are our most precious resources. Um, what has gotten us to that point? Is there, I'm going to set you up with a nice softball here. Is there some kind of crisis in youth ministry that, uh, that has initiated this concern that, man, maybe we ought to be doing youth ministry better? Yeah, um, I think so. And I, I've used that language. I use that language in my book. And maybe it's a little sensationalistic to, to call it a crisis, but in some ways, I don't think so. Um, and to put it just very simply, a lot of our students who grow up in the church who make a faith commitment to Jesus while they're in youth group uh, kind of leave that faith commitment behind after they graduate from high school. And this is kind of just everyone kind of knows this. Um, you kind of look around at your churches and you think about students that were there a few years ago who are not there now. Um, there tends to be kind of a demographic hole in many of our churches um, from, you know, 18 to 25-ish uh, crowd. Um, so I, I think that's something we kind of intuitively know. And then statistics are just uh, very much emphasize this. You can read a, a wide variety of, of statistics on this. Um, I think a good conservative estimate is 40 to 50% of our students leave after they graduate from high school. Some of those students return later on, Mm -hmm. um, but many of them do not. And so what do you think the net loss would be for this most recent, you know, for the last decade or so? It's a really good question. Um, And I mean, the the short answer, like it would be kind of a guess because we don't have great data on that yet because it's still so recent. Mm -hmm. Um, One thing there, there used to be kind of this element of, of hope that of those who go, who, who fall away um, after high school, that maybe, you know, 40 to 70% of them return. But more recently, the statistics have shown that that, that trend seems to no longer be happening. And uh, more of those who go away, just stay away. And that, that kind of makes sense in, in light of some larger societal trends that are happening, just as far as the increasing uh, secularization of our society and, and more people who are identifying themselves as uh, nuns um, on survey information, you know, which, how would you not, describe yourself religiously? None. Yeah. And like um, not, not, not to refer to a, a, a Catholic woman who is doing a convent. <laughs> Correct. Not that, yes, not that not, kind of nun. Not that kind of nun. N O N E S. Yeah. <laughs> uh, as far as I know, there's not an epidemic of those graduating and then becoming not in UNS. That's that's not a, a that would be a fascinating phenomenon. trend. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you so, hear that? You tend to hear the term uh, post-Christian. Yeah. And I th- I think that that while while that term sounds kind of scary. I don't think it's inaccurate. I think that that has generally kind of captured at least where the United States may be headed. I think you can yeah. definitely make that argument for other places in the world that were formerly known as being Christian. Europe right. comes to mind, but it, it does seem like the United States is headed that way. Yeah. I mean, it, it just, if by that, what we mean is that our society is becoming increasingly secular. I just think it's undeniable. And, and so um, in light of that, 
it's perhaps not too surprising that a lot of those who do leave are not coming back. So I don't have, I don't have strong estimates for you, but uh, I would say we're, we're probably fortunate at this point if a third of those who leave come back later. Wow. But I, I bet it's less than that. Man, yeah. So anywhere between a third to a quarter yeah. might come back. That still, that still ends up being a net loss, a pretty ugly oh, yeah. one too. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, quick side note here, uh, just, and this is not something that you and I are going to get into a lot right now, but in case somebody is, con- is curious about this term that I've used, post-Christian, to describe the United States as post-Christian, that does not mean that it is post-religious. I think, the, I think we're increasingly religious. I think what we're seeing is maybe a rise in some of these smaller, you know, smaller kinds of religions and things like that, or, or maybe a better term is we're still very spiritual but maybe not very religious. <clears throat> yeah. But that, that might have, uh, that might be relevant for some of the stuff that we're going to talk about later. Um, okay. Teens are leaving the church. That seems to be a general trend in the U S what is the deal? Why is that the case? Why are teens leaving the church? Yeah. So that's, that's kind of the big question. Um, and I don't know about you. I, I tend to be suspicious of people who answer big questions with like one answer, like this is the thing, this is mm-hmm. the reason. Yeah. Um, so I'm not going to do that. I think it's a, a complex issue. And I think the, the response is, is multifaceted. Um, so we could talk about several things. So for example, we could just talk about stage of life. Like this is kind of a natural, like when you're 18 and you graduate from high school, this is kind of a natural transition point. Mm-hmm. Um, and during times of transition and change, people change practices and behaviors um, we could talk about the uh, decrease in parental influence that occurs at that age. Um, obviously, if you go off to college um, or, you know, move away and, and start, a, start a career or a trade school, even if, even if you stay at home, which that's kind of an increasing trend these days is kind of more students uh, kind of fail to launch, uh, if you will, at that age. Um, still, there's usually a kind of a transition in the way that parents parent after high school and they, they just kind of give more, more freedom. So with decreased parental influence, um, if you no longer have a parent who's making sure that you wake up say on Sunday morning and go to, go to church, will you do that on your own? Um, coupled with that, uh, coupled with the decrease in parental influence, there's an increase in peer influence. So if you go off to college, you're spending uh, very little time around your family, but a whole lot of time around friends. Well, what if those friends are not Christians? Uh, then likely you're not going to have a whole lot of accountability or mutual influence uh, to be plugged into church and be a part of a faith community. Um, We could also talk about things like, okay, what is it that they're leaving behind exactly? How, what was their faith like before? Was it a a deeply rooted faith or was it kind of shallow? Was it um, mainly uh, to use language of Dallas Willard, was it uh, all about the gospel of sin management, where it's basically just kind of a moralized do's and don'ts list? Mm-hmm. Um, if, if this is kind of the understanding of faith, rather than something that's deeply rooted in Jesus and what he's accomplished, um, well, it, it, it makes a lot of sense to me why that could get left behind. You um, mentioned the phrase moralized list of do's and don'ts, uh, a term that I've heard within the last oh probably probably five or six years is the term moralistic therapeutic deism that basically describes what a lot of teens really a lot of 
I would say a lot of adult believers as well. Right. That basically describes what they actually subscribe to this notion that if, if they're, if they're good and um, believe that God loves them and therefore that makes them feel better, then God will be there to give them what they want or something, something along those lines. Um, That's, it's not even Christianity light. It's, it, it, it's rooted in a in a lot of strange notions about what is good and and you know it, what makes me happy is somehow related to what is good and what God wants and things like that. Yeah, um, uh, I, I think that that describes a lot of what teens, at least, would believe. Is that fair? Yeah, no, I, I think that's fair. Uh, Christian Smith, who's a he's a sociologist and um, student of religion. He, he, he's the one that coined the, fa- the phrase, I think, uh, moralistic therapeutic deism. He calls it a misbegotten step cousin of Christianity. Um, so it's like very tangentially kind of related, but in some ways really not at all. Um, yeah. And so, no, I, I would agree with you. And so it, to some degree, I would say that if your faith is not based on real Christianity in the first place, and it's only about something that's going to try to control certain behaviors it just makes a lot of sense to me that that's something that could get left behind. So, so I do think a, a shallow faith or maybe a distorted version of, of Christianity um, can be a part of that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, we could also talk about things like uh, just the busyness of, of life when you're in college or when you're out working full time and it just gets easier for things to get squeezed out like religion or going to church or things like that. Um, we could talk about kind of what I've termed the philosophy 101 effect. So if you this kind of the, the stereotypical uh, religious kid goes off to a state school and as a freshman is exposed to, you know, a, a position of authority, a, a teacher who, you know, basically says, hey, all these things that you've learned as, as a kid in church, this is just fairy tales. Um, there, there's no good reason to believe these. And, you know, by the way, if, if the student has not been taught well, has not been given a good foundation for why they believe what they believe, then that can be really challenging. Um, and then, as you already mentioned, this whole post-Christian idea, mm-hmm. um, it would just make tons of sense that for students who are very attuned to what's going on in our society and culture, that these greater societal influences that minimize um, or in many ways just ab- absolutely reject Christianity and some of its core tenets, um, that this would have an influence as well. So those are a lot of reasons, um, but I actually haven't gotten to the one that I tend to focus on a lot. Um, and a lot of youth ministry experts and researchers have really emphasized. And this is a big issue because it's a societal issue, but it's also something very specifically that we see in the church. And uh, that's uh, the idea of age segregation, hmm. which we could define as uh, the way that churches and society at large um, have systematically isolated young people from the very relationships that most help them grow to maturity. Um, This happens in our society, um, kind of widespread, and also happens in the church. Um, So a lot lot of reasons why, uh, and and I think we can respond to a lot of those in different ways, but for me, a really big issue is this problem of age segregation. Yeah, well, let's dig into that one a little bit. Um, So based on just what you've mentioned, and how you've defined age segregation. Um, it seems like that is not a good thing, right. but 
if you were to take a look at a lot of the practices of churches, you would think that age segregation is what people want, right? You know, yeah. It, it, am I am I off base there? No, I mean, no. Ba based on our practices, not maybe not necessarily what we say, but based on our practices, yeah, it seems like uh, age segregation is what we want. In many ways, it is it is what we want um, because if you're, um, so maybe let me describe it a little bit. Yeah. Um, what? Yeah. Like what? What does that look like in a church? Yeah. So, and I would say, like some of the things I'm going to say. I think are fine and good and healthy and make sense. Um, what I'm more concerned about is the cumulative effect of all of these practices going on um, at the same church at the same time, um, accumulating over several years. All right. So we could talk about things like having um, Bible classes based on age. Um, you know, that's, that's one thing we could talk about. And it's like, I actually think that's a pretty good idea. Like, I think it's good to, to teach uh, four-year-olds at a four-year-old level and not just stick them in a church auditorium as you, you know, kind of go through the book of Leviticus. I was right? going to say Ecclesiastes or Song of yeah, Solomon, right. but sure. <laughs> right. Um, and so, so that's one, uh, that's one element mm -hmm. of it. Uh, but we could talk about having a paid youth minister, um, having someone whose job it is specifically to, to focus on these kids. So perhaps uh, parents or other adults don't, don't need to, or have to. Um, we could talk about uh, in some churches, um, the youth group might have their own separate facility, uh, physically not even connected to the overall uh, church campus in its own kind of location. And, and maybe you have parents who come and drop off their students at this building and that they, they're just there with other students and with ministry staff um, the whole night and they don't even see other adults. Um, or we could talk about the practice that some youth ministries have where obviously not during a pandemic, but uh, Prior to that, where it's it's a major priority to to travel as often as possible, and mm -hmm. to be gone uh, to weekend conferences or youth rallies, um, and and miss um, you know maybe ten or twelve Sundays a year, uh, being absent from the the corporate worship of the of the local congregation, um, or if you have a small group ministry, uh, some churches will organize their small groups to where uh, there will be a youth group small group. And so while all the adults are meeting together in different small groups, the, the teens will all come together, maybe at the youth minister's house or something like this. Um, uh, or we could talk about the, the practice of children's church, um, where perhaps it's uh, thought that uh, children can't behave or parents can't kind of corral their children and also pay attention to uh, worship or what's going on. And so, uh, you know, we can send children off to a different location, physically remove them from the rest of the of the body and they can kind of worship it at their level. And again, I'm, I'm not necessarily saying that any of these are bad things. Like I'm not opposed to paying a youth minister, right? Like that is quite literally my job. Um, but what I am saying is what if, what, what if we take all of these things and we add them all together mm -hmm. and this is the experience of church that young people have all the way through. Um, I, I do think that that can be just very problematic because they're not really connecting to the congregation as a whole, but rather just to this one kind of isolated segment, which is, uh, which is the youth group. And so I think that's a, I think that's a, that's problematic. Now, getting back to the earlier question, which was, well, why do we do this? Why do we act like it's attractive? Well, it is attractive in a lot of ways. I mean, like students do like this. 
I was going to uh, ask, like, don't don't students want that? Yeah, I mean, like, go, going on trips all the time. Are you kidding? Like, that's that's a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, having your own cool youth building where you don't have to be around adults. Um, that's that's enjoyable. They 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 like that. Um, for parents, it's nice to be able to come and like hand your kids off to someone who you trust, right? Like, I mean, mm-hmm. you, you want them to be taken care of, but like yeah. to be free of kids and not have to worry about that. Like, that's that's enjoyable for parents as well. Um, so, oh, and by the way, I mean, for a while, this was promoted as the way to reach students, like that this was, this was good and wise and what we ought to do. So I do think it's problematic, uh, for multiple reasons, but I think it does make sense why it would be attractive, um, Mm -hmm. at least on the surface of it. Yeah. Yeah. So you're arguing that uh, not necessarily individual components like children's church or um, like separate youth facilities or things like that. You're saying that those in and of themselves are not bad, but perhaps the cumulative effect of these practices has maybe led us to some of the condition that we find ourselves in. Is that, yeah, is that fair? Yeah. No, that, that's absolutely fair. Um, and, I, and I would say, you know, like some of these practices are probably better than others, um, wiser or less wise than others. But I think what we're looking at, what we're really looking at is kind of the total picture. Mm-hmm. Um, but if we're doing all of these things together, I think it really does kind of warp the experience that our, our kids and our, our teenagers have of what it means to be a part of a local church. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And um, I can, I can see how, and this might be something that you want to dig into as well. Um, <clears throat> I can see how if we are wanting our children to become, um, to become mature Christian adults, it might stand to reason that we have them with greater exposure to more mature Christian adults. Yeah. Is it fair? Yeah. I mean, like when you say it that way, it really doesn't sound like rocket science, right? <laughs> I mean, uh, it, yeah. this is, and th- this is true in society as well, but like we learn how to be adults by being around adults. Um, we learn how to be mature followers of Jesus by being around mature followers of Jesus. Mm-hmm. But, so it's like, in practice, that's kind of revolutionary for our society and for, and, and for a lot of our churches. But like, yeah. it, it really does make sense when you think about it. What can we do about that? Well, um, and, I've got, and I've got some other thoughts, too, that I might be able to get into here in just a minute. But I'd, all right, let's, let's say then, for the sake of okay. argument, that you're correct. Okay. Um, that the way for Christian teens to become mature Christian adults is for them to be around mature Christian adults and consistently having them be isolated from mature Christian adults has a negative side effect. How do we remedy that? Yeah. So um, I think that, I think that what it means is we have to kind of reconceive of how we do youth ministry. Um, And uh, like, so, so what is the task of a youth minister? Well, uh, I, I don't think that the task of a youth minister should be 
to be the primary discipler of a congregation's young people. I don't think that it means that it should be all about kind of glorified babysitting or event planning. Um, by the way, it doesn't mean that a youth minister won't plan some events or at times do some things that feel a lot like babysitting or hopefully be um, a discipling influence on students. Mm-hmm. Um, but rather, I, I think that the primary task um, of a youth minister should be to help facilitate spiritual formation in students in ways that scripture teaches that should occur. And over and over again in scripture, we see two groups given the task, the responsibility of passing faith on to the next generation. Um, the, the physical family, when we're mm-hmm. talking about moms and dads, grandparents, et cetera, and the faith family, whether, uh, whether we're in the Hebrew Bible and we're talking about the, the, uh, the people of Israel collectively, or in the New Testament, we're talking about the church community. Um, these two groups, the physical family and the faith family, uh, are the ones over and over again in scripture, given the task of passing faith on to the next generation. So with that in mind, um, youth ministry should be about helping to equip parents to have that role of being uh, the, the primary disciplers of their own children and should help facilitate um, genuine, meaningful relationships between uh, students and other uh, mature adult Christians in the church and and thereby leverage both the physical family and the faith family to help uh, bring about spiritual formation in young people. I I did not prepare you for this question ahead of time and full disclosure to everybody who uh, who's listening. One, thank you. But two, uh, Luke and I had some idea of what we were going to talk about beforehand. Um, He can do this kind of stuff in his sleep, but since we wanted him to be awake for today, I wanted to give him a heads up about what we're going to do. Um, if, if one of the primary goals, as you've described youth ministry is to help, help facilitate, like help parents, is that what you said? Help parents. Um, it seems to me like that might be difficult with a 23 year old single youth minister. Mm. So what then do we do there? Yeah. I mentioned, I, I throw out a number 23 because presumably the person has graduated college. They have a bachelor's degree in, in youth ministry or family ministry or whatever their whatever the school uh, has called it. And um and, and they're in their mid-20s. They're they're single or they might be engaged uh, or married. And uh, they have but they they do not have a family. They've not raised children. I can perceive some pushback to what you've described. As, the, as one of the roles of the youth minister, how is this person even qualified to do something like this? And so I'm, I'm sorry to throw maybe a curveball. No, that's, you, that's a great question. Uh, yeah. I, I'm interested to see what you say, might say about that. Yeah, so um, say a couple of things. Like maybe we should reconceive of who our ideal youth ministry candidates should be. Oh, interesting. Like that, that, seems, that seems potentially accurate to me. Um, Having said that, I'm not trying to, uh, you know, take jobs away from kids out of college. Um, right. Yeah. But but yeah. but I would say, um, uh, you know, I, I just I don't know. I, a lot of times I think we assume perhaps because it's kind of like junior varsity ministry that we can give it to younger people. I think mm-hmm. also we assume that younger 
uh, you know, 23 year old guys can better connect with students than older, uh, perhaps more seasoned ministers could, and that might be true. Um, but also it's, it's, I think it's very much rooted in like, hey, if you want someone who uh, can survive on a diet of pizza and can play lots of basketball and, and, and go on trips where he's not sleeping, like you're describing a 23 year old more so than like I'm 37, right? Like that's, that's not me so much. Yeah, um, you have a family. And I have a family. Yeah. And so, so absolutely. So I think part of it is like reconceiving the way that youth ministries should work. And if we do that, then perhaps it makes a lot more sense to get a different sort of person in there. But having said that, I still want to say, like, I do think that there are, is a place for, you know, young guys fresh out of college or seminary mm-hmm. um, who can do this, but perhaps you, you just don't have to be the expert on everything. Uh, I knew a lot more about parenting before I had kids, right? Uh, right. Yeah. Now, now that I have kids, I'm like, oh, I didn't even know what I don't know. Um, yeah. Well, and, and to be but, fair too, uh, parents are not experts, expert parents by virtue of simply being parents. That's right. Yeah, that's fair. Um, so I guess what I would say is what, what can you do as a young person who doesn't have uh, children? Well, um, you can still read from those who are experts. You can still mm-hmm. teach from, from sources and you can just be very upfront and say, look, uh, I'm not claiming to be an expert on this. When, when I teach on this, I still say that. I still say that I'm not an expert on this. I say the same thing that I just told you. Like I thought I knew a lot about parenting until I became one. Um, mm-hmm. and, and that's okay. And I think people understand that and they get where you're coming from. And, and this is another thing where if part of what we're trying to do is to help equip parents, then probably that means that we should be very thoughtful about things like having say seminars or conferences or specific classes perhaps where we're bringing uh, experts in who, who do know about these things. If you're 23 and you have nothing, you know, meaningful to say, well, that get someone else who does know something or maybe not even bringing experts in, but look at um, parents in your own congregation who have been really successful in raising uh, godly mature adult children um, who are, who are, you know, passionate about their faith. Yeah. Um, and maybe bring them in as resources and say, hey, this, this seemed to work pretty well for you. What did you do? Um, and, and I think there's a lot of wisdom that we can glean from others. Uh, we just we don't have to pretend that we are always the expert on things just because we are the paid professional. Um, but I, I think it's I think it's a greater risk to not teach on this because you feel somehow ill equipped than it is to just uh, say, you know what, like maybe, maybe this will alienate some folks, but this is really important. So we're going to do our best um, by either, you know, going through a book together or trying to bring some folks in because um, maybe this is not my skill set. So I don't know if that fully addresses your question, but, but I, I do think that there's room for maybe reevaluating the, the kind of person we're looking for. Yeah. But if you are, if you are a younger person that doesn't have that sort of experience, that's okay. I, I think all of us who are in ministry and who preach and teach, we, we talk frequently on topics of which we have very little personal experience. Like I never experienced the Babylonian exile, but I still talk about it. Uh, and, and you still quote it, you Jeremiah know? 29. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully not as much as some do, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. Okay. So then, yeah. Uh, so to go back to a point that you made earlier about how you, you don't want to be taking jobs you know, away from people. Uh, but then you also mentioned that you know maybe we should reevaluate who we're looking for uh, as youth ministers. One thing that churches might be able to do then is really make sure that 
if they've decided that all of the things being good about their you know young candidate one thing that they must absolutely look for is an attitude, a, a motivation or an interest in furthering, furthering their own study for the purpose of effectively ministering to uh, apparently not just teens, but also to youths and their families. Um, when you mentioned helping equip parents, you have, uh, you know, that allows me to segue into uh, maybe talking a little bit more big picture stuff, because I think you've given us given us some nuts and bolts of your philosophy. Um, you are particular about using the phrase youth in family, using the preposition in rather than the conjunction and youth in family ministry. When you first started to when you first started talking about this, and I know when you published your book, some people were asking you, is that a typo? <laughs> uh, um, that is not the case, though. Why the em emphasis for youth in family? Yeah, and um, I don't think this is the, necessarily the biggest deal in the world, because sometimes when I explain this, people are just kind of like, okay, yeah, whatever. Um, but I, I do think that words matter. And so when we use the conjunction and, youth and family ministry, I mean, I think we fundamentally are stating that those are two separate things, right? There, there's youth ministry and there's family ministry. Um, and, you know, there are plenty of churches out there that use that title and try to basically do what I'm proposing here. So I'm not saying that that's like a deal breaker or a terrible thing, but, but words matter. And I think that conveys this sense of there's kind of two separate things. Well, that's not really what I want to do. What I want to do is I want to minister to young people in the context of and through the lens of family, whether that is, as I mentioned before, the physical family or the faith family. So um, I, I'm not saying that, that using that descriptor guarantees anything, um, but I do think it's a helpful reminder. It's a helpful reminder to me every time I see it, it still sounds weird because as far as I know, I'm the only one that, that uses that. Um, but that's why it's the title of my book. It's actually my title uh, here. Um, I am the youth in family minister at, yeah. at Cloverdale. Um, but it's all because youth, uh, young people are my target. That's who I'm trying to minister to. But uh, it's, it's not alongside something else. It is through the context and lens of family, physical family and faith family. Let's talk about the physical family. Uh, you've described physical family and faith family as basically two pillars of youth in family ministry. So how do we get the physical family involved in passing on faith to our children? Isn't taking them to church enough? Um, <laughs> I didn't, Apparently not based I on your look. I didn't mean to laugh and scoff at that question. Uh, <laughs> hey, it's really important. It's a really good thing to do. I would say it's not enough, but it's, it's a really good starter. It, it's kind of, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's fair to, you know, some, some parents that might feel like that's the only thing they know to do. Yeah. And um, I would say, Hey, that's, you could do a lot worse than, than not doing that. That's a step in the right direction. Right. Maybe there's some other steps we can take. Let's, let's yeah. hear some of those. So uh, I kind of have three kind of principles um, in my, in my book where I talk about this and then exactly how they look and how that's flushed out can, can kind of vary based on context. Mm -hmm. um, but first off, 
um, from a youth and family ministry perspective, if we want to really leverage the physical family, one thing that we want to do is enable parents to worship with their kids. Um, and so this is where I'm going to come down a little bit hard on children's church and risk alienating a certain portion of your audience. Okay. So uh, I, I'm not condemning the practice, not condemning it. Um, I do question its wisdom. Um, as nice as it would be for parents to be able to go to worship and meaningfully engage the sermon and, and uh, you know, sing, sing their hearts out and, and listen to the words of the, of the song and not have to worry about corralling their kids and, and making sure that they're not you know, doing something disruptive. Um, and, and, and also knowing that their kids are off somewhere and, and hopefully being meaningfully engaged and, yep. and having a good experience. All of those seem like good things. All those seem like good things. And I would just say, as nice as those things are, I believe that it is more important for your kids to sit alongside you as you worship, for them to see how important worship is, for them to learn how to worship from you, and for this to be a, a spiritually formative practice for your family together. Now, again, I'm not condemning the practice of children's church. I do think there are... Uh, health, like more and less healthy ways of, of having it in, in churches that do. But I think theologically, it is a better practice to not do it because of the, the potential uh, formative payoff of being in the trenches. Mm -hmm. uh, and you've, you, like, like me, you've got, uh, you've got little kids at home. Yeah. And, uh, and so you know what I mean. Um, and our wives probably know better than we do, right? Um, being in the in well, especially when I was uh, preaching, you know, when I was right? preaching, yeah, yeah, for four for four years, I was uh, I was teaching every Sunday and or Wednesday, and uh, and preaching every other Sunday. When I wasn't preaching, I was leading singing. So. Right. So I mean, it, it, it's a challenge, and so yeah. I call it the, the trenches, uh, quite literally. I mean, it's a, it's a challenge, and if you if you've got pews, I mean, it I was really going to say the like pews form. Yeah. It, it, it really feels uh, <laughs> like uh, like World War One there. Yeah, it does. Um, so it, it, I, I'm not minimizing the the challenge of that, but I just think there's real value um, for potential formation for our kids to, yeah. to worship alongside of us and see how important that is. So, so being that's, aware that's of one. Yeah, being aware of some of the things that um, that I think you know, maybe some of my audience members might be um, might be concerned about. I think you, in general, I I agree with where you're coming from, and we even expressed hesitancy for doing that where we worship. Um, the reason that we ended up feeling okay with uh, sending our our, our oldest because he's the only one that's old enough to go to the children's church time is that we are very intentional otherwise right. to disciple him. And so I think for some folks, but you have to be honest with yourself, for some folks, I think you can mitigate some of the negative side effects of, of sending him to one of those things. But that's not to take away at all from the point that you've made here, which I, I, I think is generally a pretty strong point. Well, and, and I'll just, I'll add this to uh, for... For people who feel the way that I do, I think sometimes there can be kind of this uh, smug self-righteousness about like, oh, well, we don't have children's church here because, you know, we care about teaching our kids to, to worship or whatever. Um, and I just want to say that 
just because you have your kids present doesn't actually mean that they are meaningfully engaged there. Um, and so, so really like this is kind of beyond the scope of this converse, conversation. What I would really like is let's have our kids present in the you're, you're I'm really sorry, kind of, I'm just, I'm just dying over here because yeah. that's, <laughs> um, right. yeah, I mean, yeah, you, you it, run it's, into it's that kind thing. of thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, but just because you have your kids present doesn't mean that you're necessarily accomplishing a whole lot. And so like, I, I'm all about the conversation of like, what can we do in our assembly to more meaningfully engage all generations that are present. I mean, mm. I'm, I'm all for that con- conversation. I think that's, I think that's helpful. So like, uh, please don't hear me as kind of this self-righteous smugness of, well, as long as you say no to children's church, you're doing everything right. That's, that's certainly not what I'm saying, but I do believe that um, it's an important principle to enable parents to, uh, to worship with their kids. So, yeah. so that's number one. Okay. Um, yep. Number two, we want to provide opportunities for families to live the Christian life as a family. Okay. And so in this sense, we're really thinking about things like what's your church calendar look like? What, what events are on your church calendar? Are those family friendly events? Um, are you having, uh, obviously you're going to have perhaps events for certain uh, demographics. So maybe you have like a ladies retreat, Sure. but are, yeah. do you also have things like family retreats for the whole family? Do you have, um, if you have work days or service project days, are you thoughtful and intentional about how, you know, like a whole family could come and, and meaningfully participate in that? And uh, kids could, could serve the Lord alongside their parents and alongside the rest of the, the church family, um, rather than, uh, you know, I've, I've witnessed and been a part of church events before where it's like, hey, if I want to participate in this, I've got to leave my kids at home. Um, that might be necessary sometimes, but I would say it's not a healthy general practice for people to have to choose between church involvement and spending time with family. Oh yeah. Um, instead, how can we how can we structure events where you can uh, actively be a part of the life of the church as the physical family? Mm. Does that make sense? You mentioned earlier about maybe restructuring how we how we conceive of youth ministry. That almost seems like. Uh, to some degree, a restructuring of how we conceive of church activities and you know, just church doing church things. Yeah, absolutely. And so one thing that I would say, and I, I say this in the book. Uh, I can really, hear the feathers ruffling now. Yeah. yeah it, it, it's, <laughs> this perspective is like an invasive species. Like it gets in and then it takes over everything. But, but really, this is, this is not just um, another program. Like if you kind of imagine or envision a, a church website where you go to like ministries and there's a drop-down list, um, but rather kind of youth and family is a mindset that should inform all of the things that we do. Yeah. Um, so are, are we doing things in a way that lifts up our families and lifts up parents to, to disciple their kids? Or are we, again, are we intentionally or unwittingly separating parents from their kids by the things that we plan. So, so number two, we want to provide opportunities to live the Christian life as a family. Mm -hmm. And then number three, and we've kind of alluded to this already, we want to help parents teach and raise their kids in the Lord. And so um, research does indicate that the parents are the primary spiritual influences of their kids. And so what can we do to help parents be um, as thoughtful and intentional about that as possible. And so this is things like, um, like we were talking about before, like maybe certain classes or resources or seminars 
um, to help. I mean, it's one thing to tell parents that they need to do this. And I feel like a lot of parents understand that kind of intuitively and they're, they're very open to it, but that doesn't mean that they feel equipped to do it. So we want to do what we can to kind of equip parents uh, to take up the mantle that God has given them already. Yeah. And especially for parents who themselves are pretty new to the faith. Absolutely. Um, I, 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 you and I have been in, in, in church work for a while now. Um, and it's, it's not at all hard to find you know, maybe a, a teen or a, you know, a, a middle school student whose faith seems to be more mature than their parents' faith for whatever reason. Yeah. yeah I mean, absolutely. Uh, if, if you are someone who yourself was not raised in the church or never developed a super uh, mature faith, um, then it totally makes sense that this would be kind of an overwhelming task that, that you feel that you've been given. Yeah, definitely. Um, that actually surprises me, though. I, I think it, you might have, might have just mentioned here that parents are the primary spiritual influences. Yeah. That surprises me because, I, it, it, to me at least, it seems like so many children name someone other than their parents as their main faith influencers. Yeah, so some of this is probably just uh, perception, um, and I would agree with you. Um, it, it's not surprising to me anymore just because I read it constantly in the, the literature based okay. on survey results over and over again. I mean, this is, this is uh, a pretty universal um, finding. I'm not saying that every single person says this, every single student would say sure. this, but, yeah. but the, the universal conclusion is that parents are the primary spiritual influences. Um, but it's like, obviously, we kind of have this popular notion of, like, you know, especially teenagers, like they come home. Uh, maybe they immediately grab some food and they march upstairs, close the bedroom door, blare the music, and and they want they, they avoid being around their parents at all, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I've certainly uh, heard stories of parents, and perhaps you have as well, um, where uh, their their students will rave about something that maybe a teacher or a coach told them, and it was so meaningful to them, and the parents are like, "Are you kidding me? Like I told you that like six times, and like it's never, you know." So I'm not denying that that's a that that's a reality, and especially yeah. um, especially as as students get older and kind of more independent and um, into teenage years. Uh, but there's just such a great discrepancy in the time that parents have around their kids compared to other groups. So there, there's one author who, uh, based on some research, had said that the church averages about 40 hours a year of influence with students. Obviously, that's going to depend, um, but that's, that's the, the statistic that they put out compared to parents who have about 3,000 hours of influence. Wow. Um, so there's really no comparison there. And now, as far as I understand the data, that doesn't mean that parents are taking advantage of all of those 3,000 hours. Sure. Yeah. Um, but the reality is like as a youth minister, I just don't have that much um, time to influence students unless I pretty invasively insert myself into their lives. Like I'm, you know, I'm not showing up for dinner um, at, at their houses. Um, and so there, there is uh, just kind of this huge discrepancy. And so that, that kind of makes sense to me. Um, but it's, it's kind of an accepted uh, maxim in these sorts of uh, studies that parents spiritually with their kids, parents get what they are, um, or at least they get what their kids perceive them to be. Their influence yeah. is so strong that 
obviously there are exceptions. I, I mean, there's, it, it's kind of just a general rule, Sure. but overwhelmingly, yeah. I mean, th- there is a high correlation between what parents are like spiritually in their devotion to Christ and what their kids are like. I guess, I, I don't know, I hadn't thought about this before, but I, I, I guess I was only, only considering the positive side effects of the spiritual influence of parents. But it totally makes sense to me along the lines of what you've been saying that parents can very easily be seen as the as negative spiritual influencers. If their parent is it, it, it's tough for a parent to pass on a faith that they don't have, so it's not surprising right. then why their children end up in, in in many instances why their children end up in much the same spiritual boat as themselves. Yeah, absolutely. Um and I mean you can talk to youth ministers and some of the, some of the most difficult students to work with. Um, and, and I mean, I really mean difficult from the standpoint of trying to help them develop long-term faith mm-hmm. are those students who don't come from Christian homes. And it's like you, you put extra effort and you uh, show extra love to those students and you do um, as much as you can to kind of bridge the gap. But, statistically it's it's just not very promising it's just not great because it is so difficult to out teach the home um it just it's it's so hard to do better uh <clears throat> if you've got a really good foundation at home you can you can elevate that but if there's if there's no foundation at home it's really hard to create that in the very limited sliver of time that we have with students at church I come from a, a family of public school educators, and they would echo that sentiment as well. Right. Yeah. I think a lot of our teachers, public or private school, they would echo that sentiment as well. So the physical family is the first pillar of youth ministry, youth in family ministry. <clears throat> Let's take a look at this. Uh, talk about the second pillar of youth and family ministry. How do we get the faith family involved in passing on faith to our children? Yeah. So, um, a couple, again, a couple principles here that we can use. Um, one, and this is a really big one. We want to encourage, uh, meaningful relationships between young people and older mature Christians in the, in the church. And so, um, how this might happen could really depend a lot on the circumstance, but really we're talking about like mentors. We, we want to, to pair students with, with people who can be mentors in their lives and, um, I'll just put kind of a word of caution in. We, we also want to just be aware of the times in which we live. And, and we, we know a lot of things about, uh, you know, sexual predators and, and things like this, that uh, we, we just have to be vigilant. We have to protect our kids. Um, so we, we want to be wise as we go about doing that. Um, but yeah. I do think there are ways in which we can do that wisely and safely, um, but where we can provide meaningful relationships between students and adults in the church. Um, and, uh, and this has, has shown to have long-term benefits as uh, students then have more connections to the, the congregation as a whole. Um, so then a second principle, uh, we want to remove our young people from the worship of the assembly as little as possible. Now, this is a little different from what I was saying before. This is not um, another slam on children's church. This is rather uh, research has just indicated um, that one of the strongest correlations between long-term faith and another factor is regular attendance at the Sunday assembly. Um, mm-hmm. that, 
that that is such a traditional thing to say that that perhaps it it sounds kind of ridiculous, but it really makes sense. If you if you want your kids to develop an understanding that church is important, they actually need to to do it a lot. Um, we, we tend to value the things that we spend our time doing, and so that sounds radical. It does, doesn't it? So, from a youth ministry perspective, and I, I mentioned this earlier. Um, there are some youth ministries that seem to almost make it a goal to identify as many things to take them away from the Sunday assembly as often as possible. Mm -hmm. And I just don't think that's a great idea. Um, I I think hopefully a a positive of this pandemic season that we've gone through is that perhaps we've seen the value in connecting um, in person. I mean, we're, we're all thankful for mediums like this, uh, right. as you and I are discussing today, we're thankful that we have these. Um, but they are substitutes. They're not replacements. Um, and th- there really is value in, in being part of the assembly of God's people, um, when, when we're worshiping corporately together. So I, I think it's important that we look at our youth ministry calendars and we try to structure them in, in such a way that, we're actually here. We're, we're present. Um, we try not to be gone many times a year. Um, and for families, uh, I think it's really important that that we structure our priorities to where we're tr- we try to not be gone a lot. I mean, I, I've had students mm-hmm. in the past who were very involved in things like, uh, you know, year-round sports. Um, and I would have families who, in the course of a summer, you know, maybe 12 weekends would be gone, 10 of those playing travel ball. Yeah that has cumulative effects that we can't just undo or compensate in other ways. Um, especially if then you're also gone, you know, another dozen times throughout the year for other reasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we need to be present um, in order to feel like we belong. And it, it's, it's just not a surprise that at some point our students would check out to something that they weren't really a part of to begin with. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, <clears throat> let me ask this. So am I getting, uh, making sure that they're there? How, um, like, what are, what are a couple of practical steps? Like, I, I can see how somebody in a church would immediately think, okay, we want to get our, you know, we want our young folks to be here. That makes sense. We want them to, um, you know, we want them to be involved. I, I think inclusion is basically you know, one of the things without having said the word, I think inclusion is one of the things that you've been talking about here. Yeah. Um, by way of comparison, you know, a lot is said about diversity these days, but I think the ultimate point of diversity is inclusion. Um, and so an example would be this. I mean, it's nice for a suburban church to have, for example, you know, a Hispanic ministry or something like that. Um, but a lot of times the main church and the Hispanic church, they rarely do anything together. Mm. You know, that's good. I'm I'm glad you've you've given a space. Um, you know, that there's space for these uh, you know, for these folks, but they really are kind of parallel congregations. I think it would be more. It's it's probably harder, but it's definitely more meaningful for there to be mutual inclusion. I would think. Right. Um. So, you know, rubber meets the road here. Do you have, do you have young people? reading scripture? Do you have them saying prayers? Do you have them delivering communion? Do you do you allow them to stumble through, you know, some kind of public speaking role? 
and it uh, you know it's, and let your professionalism suffer a little bit. You know, is that something we can? Are those things we can do? Uh, I I would say yes. I mean, uh, I guess maybe I should have put a disclaimer out at the beginning of this that like almost everything I'm saying is kind of pre-pandemic and also kind of hopefully post-pandemic. I mean, that kind of all the rules have been thrown out in some degree, but um, absolutely. I mean, I think we should include our young people in, in worship in, in whatever ways that we can. And, and even beyond, I mean, I am talking about worship here. And so that's important, but like in all aspects of church life that we can and all sorts of ministry and um, whether it's, you know, helping to, to teach children's classes or being a part of uh, you know, some sort of service project or uh, outreach ministry or something like that, uh, just depending on what different churches are doing. Um, I think a, a good question would be, hey, if we're, if we're going to do this, what's a way in which we could, what is a way in which we could involve our students mm-hmm. um, so they could be meaningfully involved um, now? And, and, and certainly in worship. I mean, different churches have different perspectives on this, but uh, at, my, at my previous congregation, for example, I mean, we did have... Um, some of our young men would be involved in, in the public assembly, but like one Sunday night a month, we, it was, it was called youth led worship and, and basically everything was done by our, our young folks. And, um, and that was something that uh, they looked forward to and also provided opportunity for interaction with adults because we would have, um, you know, adults who would come before service and kind of pair up with students and, and mentor them and train them and help them to, you know, practice the, the comments they were going to make or, or yeah. work on their songs or things like that. So, so absolutely. I mean, I would say yes, in, inclusion in that way. I would also say inclusion in things like, um, like song selection. Uh, if, if we have multiple generations present, it makes sense to me that we would sing songs that speak to multiple generations. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, obviously there's, uh, p- people can get touchy about song selection and I, I understand that, but, uh, like, one of the truest things I ever heard was when it comes to the music we sing at church, probably no one should be happy all the time. Um, Interesting. Because we should be, you know, we should be putting up with and, and uh, singing songs that are not our favorites, but that we know are the favorites of, of other people that we, that we know and love and care about and mm-hmm. we worship with. So those are just some, a couple of different ideas, but, but absolutely. I think, I think you're on the right track when you talk about inclusion. We want people to feel included. We want them to feel, um, a part of the church now, not just that they're biding their time until they can be a part of the church in the future, but they're a part yeah. of the church now and they're, they're recognized um, and valued now. Yeah. That's something that I know uh, a lot of folks have, um, have kind of had to struggle with in the past. Um, I had, the, I had the advantage uh, and the, the main preaching minister that I work with Mark Adams. Um, he and I both grew up at the same congregation together, suburban congregation, uh, in Nashville, and uh, we had the advantage of you know, routinely hearing excellent sermons, excellent worship ministry. Um, I mean, it was just a treat growing up in an environment where we had such a high quality available to us every Sunday morning. Uh, for a time, we were having some Sunday evenings where, uh, if I'm remembering correctly, where teens were able to do some things. Uh, some things like what you've described. Eventually, that that went away when we um, when we kind of uh, broke up into our our smaller. We didn't call them life groups. We called them home churches because that's basically what we were doing. We were you know, we were the church, just you know, meeting in our homes. And um, 
the opportunity, I, I remember having opportunities to share even when I was in college, mm. you know, and I, I went with my parents uh, to their home church where the next youngest person was my mom and, and the age range older than her was like 25 or 30 years. And so like, it was, it was really kind of unusual, um, you know, just on the, you know, by the optics of it, but I, I was blessed because I had an opportunity to listen, also had an opportunity to participate, had an opportunity to do all kinds of things like that. Um, but I do know that some churches struggle with being able to let some of their younger folks do things because there is an expectation of, you know, whether you call it professionalism or quality or something along those lines. I almost wonder if we might need to be willing for the churches that struggle with this, if we might need to be willing to, to really sacrifice some of that for the sake of including and involving some of these younger folks. Yeah. I think that's fair. Um, and look, I'll just say, I mean, I, I love to hear, you know, really well done lessons by people who have spent a lot of time studying. And I love to hear high quality singing and things like this, but um, think about Jesus. And I think about Jesus saying, let the little children come to me. <laughs> and I, I try to balance that with all the times that Jesus valued things like professionalism and appearance <laughs> and and yeah. I, I mean you know i'm just being transparent like i i i think that's a value that we have that i'm not sure that jesus has and so if and i'm not sure that we have to make this dichotomy but if the choice is between professionalism or involving you know all all generations of god's people including children like right. i i just i feel like we have a pretty clear biblical precedent of which of those jesus would would value more I mean, yeah. you know what I'm saying? Um, and, but, but I, I don't think that we have to choose that way. I right. mean, I, I don't think that, that the barometer of, are you involving your students is, do you have an eight-year-old pre preaching on Sunday morning? Like, <laughs> I, I don't think that that has to be the standard that we set. Yeah. I think that there are ways that we can involve them meaningfully um, and, and still honor people who have gifts and, and talents and have put a lot of effort and, uh, and study into honing those things and, you know, have a, have a word from the Lord to present. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't think we have to choose, but at the end of the day, Jesus had some pretty strong words about the way that we treat our children and the way that he values them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very much so. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm reminded of a way where we can kind of, uh, let me make sure that I want to, I'm going to say this correctly. I can see how this, applies to really two people that Jesus selected for preaching the gospel. We have Paul, the highly educated Pharisee, and we have Peter, an eager, motivated, blue-collar worker. Now, Peter probably wasn't educated at all in the sense that Paul was educated, but that doesn't mean that Peter was dumb by any means. Um, you know, I don't think that was the case at all, but we see Jesus spending a lot of time, Jesus willing to invest time and energy into someone like Peter, you know, in order to get him to a point where, you know, we see him in acts, you know, doing the things that Jesus had just spent the last several years uh, working with him to do. Yeah. 
Yeah, I can see that. Luke, as we kind of wrap up with our time here this uh, this afternoon, is there any last words of parting wisdom that you want to share with us? Any maybe like real, really great home runs that you, or any great clinchers that you want to share with us from your book or, or something along these lines? Yeah, well, um, there's a, a quotation that I'd like to share, um, but just kind of to emphasize, we do see in scripture uh, over and over again, like, like we talked about the physical family and the faith family being the ones who are given this task of path, passing faith on to the next generation. Um, what I think is really encouraging is that research also indicates that this is successful. Um, th th there's no guarantees that if you do the right things, your kids will come out perfect. That's, that's not the way that life works. Um, but there are really strong correlations. And so this is a, a quotation from a kind of a massive research study uh, that's a, a little bit old now, over 10 years old, but um, just a, a really comprehensive study of, of the rel religious lives of young people. And it says that um, one of the key findings of the study is that in young people, spiritual formation occurs in two places, individual family households and multi-general I'm sorry, multi-generational religious congregations, individual family households, multi-generational religious congregations, or in other words, the physical family and the faith family. Yeah. Um, it really shouldn't surprise us that what God tells us to do in scripture actually works. Weird, um, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Um, but I, I'm hopeful, personally, I'm hopeful that we really are kind of going through this uh, shift um, when I first started in grad school researching this to, to try to get better about youth ministry and get a better handle on what we should do, um, there wasn't a ton of research on this. And this is just about seven years ago. Like I, I basically read everything I could get my hands on. And now um, I, I can't even keep up with all of the stuff that's being put out and the resources that are being published promoting this type of ministry where we're really trying to incorporate our students into the 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 overall congregation of the church and also equip parents. So I'm very hopeful mm -hmm. that these are ideas that are um, really starting to, uh, to have leaven uh, in the church and are, and are really having an impact um, over time. And yeah. I really appreciate you giving me the opportunity to, to share some today. Well, I, I'm, I'm happy to do it. I know this is something that, uh, that you've been passionate about for a while. And uh, as a, uh, as fathers, you and I both have a vested interest in ensuring that our children uh, come to own their own faith. And uh, especially as ministers, we have maybe a, a, a better chance of, uh, maybe, maybe a better chance of initiating some of those changes than some do, or at least advocating for those kinds of changes to be made that we think can be effective toward this end. Luke, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon on the podcast. I really appreciate your time and uh, appreciate the work that you've been doing. Um, I hope that uh, you know, at some point in the future, we might talk a little bit about some other uh, other topics that I'll run by you later, uh, just so I won't commit you to anything here publicly. But uh, until then, man, have a good, uh, good rest of the day, and we'll talk to you next time, okay? I appreciate it, Kevin. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye.